This podcast episode is brought to you by Iron Source. Iron Source are not a spinach-based nutrition company, as their name might suggest, but are actually a game tech company which builds technologies that help you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super efficient way. So whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, IronSource is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor of Fun are giant fans of IronSource because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So we suggest that you head on over to ironsource.com, ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. Folks, most mobile advertisers are increasingly aware of the dangers of app install fraud. In fact, global financial exposure to app install fraud in the first half of 2020 was $1.6 billion. And even though the mobile ad industry has grown exponentially to defend itself properly against ad fraud, the potential amount of damage is still extremely high and fraudsters will always want a piece of that pie. Now, fraud methods are constantly evolving and adapting to solutions in the market. Still, staying protected and applying sophisticated anti-fraud solutions are very much a necessity for all marketers. As you all know, our good partner AppSlyer offers super robust fraud protection, making sure you're not paying for that bogus traffic. AppSlyer is also perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile. A true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive that marketing success. And listen, it's not only us at here at Deconstructor of Fun raving about AppSlyer. Playrix, Tencent, Playtica, Square Enix, Huge Games, all of these companies and many more are using AppSlyer to boost their business. So go to appsflyer.com and get yourself attribution and fraud protection you can trust. Welcome, folks. We are here at Twig 101, and with us today, we have myself, Joe Kim, Eric Kress, Adam Telfer, and Mishka Katkoff is back once again. And what we will be covering today is first, Call of Duty Warzone Mobile seemingly leaked in Activision job post by Newsweek. Second, Stillfront Group acquires Nanobit and expands a portfolio with narrative and lifestyle games. Third, welcoming the talented teams and beloved game franchises of Bethesda to Xbox by Xbox Wire. And finally, we will end with a discussion on Sony versus Microsoft and their next-gen strategy. What's up, guys? How's it going? It's going good. I'm, I'm here back because last time you were saying, yeah, we, we really need some more mobile news. So I'm joining <laughs> in it now. And just before we start recording, these guys are like Adam and Eric are just thinking about what, <laughs> like, should we just cut all the mobile articles away? So no, guys. So everybody listening from the mobile side, I'm here to defend mobile games business. <laughs> We're talking about sea changes in the industry with $7.5 billion acquisition of Bethesda. And he's talking about some small Croatian team getting acquired by Stillfront for a hundred and something million. It's like, it's mice nuts, dude. Mice nuts. Mobile is not interesting right now. It's all about triple A's. Yeah. Thing is, if you work in mobile, it's not interesting if, if Microsoft acquires Bethesda. But I don't know, scopely $3 billion, you know. Uh yeah. yeah, everything's everything's out of bounds right now. I'll tell you that much. But we'll get to it. All right, should we jump right, into we... the updates? Let's do it. All right, uh, three quick updates on my side. So, firstly, 
per request from Twig Hundo. Uh, we, we've opened up Slack group and now you can apply to Deconstructor of Fun Slack group by, well, you should find it. You just go deconstructorfun.com and slash, uh, and, and then just find the Slack group and you need a reference. So in order to get the reference, you have to know somebody who's in the Slack group or you just contact Joe Kim and he will refer <laughs> you happily if you do it through LinkedIn because he replies to all the messages. Uh, but anyway, so mostly just senior people in, in the group and we're talking about all these things, um, a lot about headlines and, and other interesting stuff. So join if you, if you, get, the, uh, if you get approved. Uh, second, second thing is I want to give a shout out to Game Refinery. They came up with a strategy report. I think it came out yesterday and you can grab that report. So this is mobile games, Eric. So the strategy report for mobile games and you can get it from gamerefinery.com slash blog. It's, it's really good. It's really comprehensive. Talks about the, how, the, uh, how the market has evolved, the COVID effects and all the key features that you need to have in this most monetizing uh, genre of mobile games. And then third update is pretty interesting one. So Metacore, formerly known as Every Play Game, a company, is it, is it owned by Super? How do we say this? this is, it's like a Supercell portfolio company, right? They own over 50%. Um, they, they snapped $29.5 million from Supercell. So it's a um, and 17.7 was secured. And then there's like a 12 million line for credit. And this is all to them launching Merge Mansion and I on iOS and Android. So clearly they're seeing some absolutely phenomenal KPIs and they're raising money to scale, launch and scale this, this Merge Mansion game. Yeah, this seems crazy, right? Um, first off, it's everywhere games, right? Because it was every, like they used to do wearables like they used to do like Apple Watch games and stuff like that, right? Um, which is nuts, right? So this studio is only 15 people shifted towards casual mobile development and looks like their first game inside of this merge genre is a pretty big success, right? That's the only way that I could see Supercell doing this. And just merge gameplay in general is just on fire right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think we reported on Big Fish's merge game previously and just how, right, like that one's exploding Zynga Graham, right? Like they've owned this this market, but it looks like there's a lot more room than there's than there's been in the past. So this is like a new genre that's just exploding. Um, and for me, I just kind of wonder if there's any other kind of hyper casual to actual business model transitions possible in the future, um, where we can take some of the learnings that we've seen from hyper casual, but then of course actually apply you know real business practices to it. Yeah. Um, this deal though, yeah, it feels nuts to me, right? Like 15 person team just mer just pivoted, right? So the only way this can work is if it's basically a UA loan, right? Um, so I just wonder how they actually evaluated this, right? Like, did they actually do like a proper campaign evaluation or are we just looking at a small beta launch? Yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely interesting. And since you're talking about UA and UA is important part and, and Metacore, I find it like, I always kind of like think about Manticore because that's another piece in the news. So it's Metacore, Manticore. But anyway, the Metacore, they don't have a UA person really. And they just gotten their hands on a really thick budget. So because they're so close by, they're in Helsinki. This is a village. This is a village with a lot of game developer companies. So in my head, I'm always thinking about like, okay, so they have a lot of money now. They have a game that is able to scale. 
who is going to scale that that game and i'm i'm like thinking about this game of elimination because there's a 50% chance that one of the uh, one of the major studios in helsinki will lose their head of ua and um they're looking for somebody who's most likely has recent experience in launching and scaling a game and preferably a casual game so if they are unable to get that ua lead which they presumably need to have asap because they just got the money so so i started thinking about like okay who are they going to snap is it going to zynga or small giant are they going to lose somebody of course not i mean the retention bonuses the games are increasing the farmville 3 is about to launch like those are those are big things then i was thinking about is it ea or ubisoft well not really because they don't have the ua people here on site it's more like product marketing and so forth so i was certain that it's future play games because future play has experience like it's a pretty small studio uh they scaled their games i think they have like 100 million dollars or something like that they've scaled a lot of their new games and uh they've gone through different things and <laughs> and i was about to say that it's most likely that that future play will lose their head of ua and then their head of ua posts on facebook that they just launched a game that is called merge gardens well surprise surprise <laughs> probably great kpis a great merge games so so um if somebody if if it's a studio that that um that is in danger of of losing some people from UA to to this company i would almost have to say that it could be rovio because rovio makes these type of games casual games and rovio has has great ua and of course i'm i'm not hoping that they lose i'm i'm hoping that the more talent comes to finland from other places this is an awesome place we need all kind of games talent but uh but this is the type of elimination game that i play in my head and and yeah just went through it so So congrats to um fuck I want to say Manticore Metacore <laughs> for for raising so much money for having a great KPIs and and for starting to scale their game and hopefully they find a great UA lead from outside Finland. <laughs> so All right, now we, go on let's, to Manticore. <laughs> yeah, let's let's move on to something actually interesting and material. Okay, so Manticore raised 15 million from Epic. And uh, if you checked out the podcast that we did with them um, recently, Manticore builds up a core platform, which is basically UGC um, platform. It's a higher fidelity Roblox. Um, User generated content. Stop with the uh, acronym. Come on, man. We got to keep this as, as uh, jargon filled as possible. Um, yeah, so the, the only things that I would note with this The hard part, as we noted in the podcast, is this flywheel, is that you need players playing, you need quality content, which needs quality developers, and quality <laughs> developers don't really come until those players are being motivated. So trying to grease these wheels, greasing the, the flywheel to the point that this engine can make sense is the biggest challenge, I think, with their business model. But the interesting part about Manticore is if you've taken a look at a lot of the videos, it makes multiplayer shooters actually very, very easy to build up. Um, and I could actually see some Brendan Green type stories coming up with Core, where um, within this platform, um, some great game designers get bubbled up uh, where they can actually create some very interesting game designs. And likely this is why Epic actually believes in this space. Although I would say they should be incorporating this into Fortnite. Um, so it could be them basically just doing a little bit of an investment into a potential competitor. Because I think that if you know their metaverse um, is really their their um uh, aspiration here they need to be building this within fortnite uh do, second do you know, do, wait hold on do you know if they their engine do they use epic or do they have their own engine? yeah they use Unreal. Yep. 
Yeah, the okay. Unreal, I'm sorry, yeah. Okay. So it, it is potentially sense. a good fit. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, Origin is now dead, and now everything's moving towards EA Play. Um, so the subscriptions that they used to have, I forget what they were called, but now they're all being mo moved over to something called EA Play. And EA Play is now the PC launcher for all of EA's game. Um, which actually allows them to say be a lot more flexible about how EA's games are going to be used in the future. So you'll notice um, there have been some headlines here where uh, EA's subscription is now being added to Game Pass as well. EA games are now added to Steam and potentially EA games will be added to Epic in the future. So I think uh, EA is looking at how do we build up a strong subscription base and how do we make sure our PC launcher is no longer in the way of that, that uh, a locked PC launcher is just not really part of the subscription strategy there. But let, let's be clear here. I just want to make sure that everyone uh, is aware. This is not really a content subscription. This is more like a frequent flyer program where there is content associated with it, but it's old content, but you're not getting yeah. new stuff. You're getting just the old stuff. And so what they use this for is a retention mechanism and an engagement platform so that people who buy Madden and FIFA all subscribe to this. So they get discounts on content and discounts on currency and early access, et cetera. So Again, this is a good win for this is a win-win for both of them because uh, Microsoft gets old sports content that no one's likely to play, but just to still can say that they have sports content. And then EA continues with their kind of lo um, loyalty programs uh, for their subscription, and they're giving up a, th a thirty-dollar subscription. And most likely, there's some kind of back-end deal in which they get paid out for anybody that uses signs up from them and whatever. Who knows? Like. How that works but anyway just to be clear are you, are you sure about that just because i i have ea play pretty sure i have fifa 21 and madden 21 and i never bought those no no but but after the but when when fifa 20 no whoa when the new game comes no no the new games are not part of ea play there's ea play you, and, i think and you're then there's ea the play plus there's EA, there's, there's two, two uh, okay so i have the versions. plus one which includes the games yeah it includes the, the new ones game. Right, right, right. This is just a $30 one that includes old games. Okay. Um, just confusing everybody. So. <laughs> no, no, because uh, we may be confusing people, but from a consumer perspective, it just means that you get access to old EA games on the service, which makes the service that much more compelling. So it's, it's very smart on the consumer end. Yeah, so the one that get, got added to Game Pass does not include any of the new FIFA, new Madden games. It's right. all the old stuff. Exactly. I, I think everybody fell asleep, guys. <laughs> all right, mobile guys. Oh, <laughs> Calm God. down. Oh, wait. Look. God of wait, War has entered the arena. God get, of War, Ragnarok. Wait, is, there, is there a team in, in Croatia that's going to get acquired for $10 million by your friends at Supercell? Wait a minute. Do we, do we need to cover another story like that? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so God of War was teased during the PlayStation reveal, which definitely is exciting. It says it's being released in 2021, which is definitely bold, right? Um, the only way that this could work is likely that it's a more of an expansion or a standalone expansion. So something closer to Miles Morales uh, instead of a full-size game. Uh, I don't know how else they could have got that done so yeah, fast. My, my, my sources said that this thing's a 2022 at the best, right? So I don't know why they teased it that way. 
I will yeah. say this, it's going to be cross-platform like every other goddamn game coming out of Sony. Just to be clear, I was dead right about that. Miles Except from Ratchet and Clank. Horizon. No, Except we don't Ratchet even know about Ratchet. I guarantee you, Ratchet. Oh, yeah, this the only could do this on the faster loading PS5. Bullshit, dude. That's coming to PS4. I'm telling you, dude. <laughs> There's no exclusives this generation. Full stop, dude. Just stay. MGS5 remaster. That's, that's exclusive. What? Oh, and uh, yeah, and dude, it's a remaster. That's not an exclusive. <laughs> that game was out like for PS3, dude. Don't even, don't even go there. It's like it's so annoying and frustrating. I just can't wait to play Demon Souls on my and, PlayStation Five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My the PS3 title for yeah, fuck that, dude. That's just stupid. Anyway, I just love the fanboys getting all butthurt because they don't have any exclusives on their console. Well, you know, this is what happens during new consoles. So get over it. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, Scopely is in talks for another financing round at $3 billion evaluation. <laughs> so they're <laughs> raising $200 million with a $3 billion post valuation. And no, you're not having deja vu. They raised $200 million back in March. And at that point, it was at a $1.9 billion valuation. Um, and keep in mind, this was both of these are after the Fox Next Fox, Fox Next acquisition which happened in january um so right now this feels like a rocket ship or rocket ship that's targeting mars like the, the optics of raising another 200 million and keep in mind this is a rumor this is me speculating on a rumor um if they're actually trying to raise another 200 million is definitely odd and says to me that they're burning cash in a pursuit of growth that is definitely very risky um so likely they are cash flow positive as as it says in the article but um, in, of course, they're showing signs of revenue growth. But as we know in mobile, revenue growth is not the signal of health. The underlying cash flow and return on marketing spend is actually what matters here. And that's what we can't really see using uh, Sensor Tower. And that's really where you know, signals of 200 million back to back in the same year is a worrying sign. Eric? I don't I think so. I don't like think about like a lot of companies, uh, big companies, not just game companies, are raising a lot of money at the moment yeah. and i just think it's because if there's good investments to be had and at a, at a good valuation and you can get a lot of a war chest filled up it makes sense it doesn't matter whether you're um i'm not going to name anything because it's too close but <laughs> but i think it makes sense if there if you can raise you should raise it's a frothy market right now yeah. so if, if you can get the money go get the money we, we didn't even talk about playco right <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah I, mean, <laughs> I, I know the guys at Wellington. I'm they're pretty sophisticated in this space. They actually I think they've owned a lot of uh Zynga and et cetera. So I'm not sure what they're seeing here though. And I think you're right. I think the game is the market is so frothy right now that it's almost it's just completely illogical, like things that are being funded. And I think we're gonna talk about this a little bit later. But right now, Scopely is really pumping up Marvel and Star Trek. I mean, the games are growing at insane rates, right? But I still think these guys are unprofitable. So they keep going back to the well, and 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 they're just, they're setting themselves up. If they don't really get a new big hit from some of these games that are in development, I think this is going to be a big challenge for them going forward. So, but I, I totally agree with Mishka, right? This is all opportunistic. Anybody that wants to raise money, this is like as good as it gets, man. This is the market, right? It's it is insane, you know. You, like, but uh, but anyway, moving on. But does does the three billion value, valuation actually make sense here? No, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> why? How is this well, safe? To raise just to be clear, we're speculating, right? We're we're, we're all speculating. Yeah, of course. But no, like, I'm not speculating. I'm an expert. Know, 
This shit yeah. ain't worth three billion, dude. <laughs> this is no way. It wasn't worth two billion. So you know, exactly, it, it, right? like Visca and, and Joe, like speak to this. Like, would you take another two hundred million if it meant that your valuation went to three billion, right? Like, it, it depends. You, you just it depends. Your company value, taking whatever it, money you can, because because the market says it's frothy right now. I think Scopely is going to IPO eventually. They have a super broad. Portfolio. Oh, give me a break. Johnny. They're they're most. I, I think they're profitable. They have a wide portfolio. They're not profitable. Well, coronavirus. They could be profitable because of the coronavirus bump. Right yeah, now, but are we and saying they're like, growing? And we are they still going to be profitable? We've deconstructed their growth. They're growing year after year. It doesn't matter what you say, but but the thing is, like, I don't know about valuation that much. I just know that they're growing. And as they've been raising money, they've been buying pretty great studios. They've invested into a lot of different studios around the world. They're making a lot of different games. They're very into IPs, which is good because with the depreciation of IDFA, I think their position is much better. Uh, they got they built core competences in strategy. They got RPG. They got casual, like these with friends stuff. It's it's I they have it's, no. Come on, dude. They have they have two <laughs> two games that matter. Full stop. Right. That's all that matters. Right. And. And those games are doing extremely well, and they're building up a war chest to acquire new comp- companies, right? So if that's their strategy, like a roll-up strategy, I think that kind of makes some sense. But they're not profitable. They're certainly not worth $3 billion, and they got to do quite a bit of effort to make, make that valuation make sense. So Allegedly. I think they're going to IPO at le- and then get like to four point. You are just You are just totally trying to troll me, aren't you? <laughs> I, just stop. Just stop. All right, moving on. Okay, moving on. Supercell and Tencent were ordered to pay GRI, um due to pat- patents and gotcha. Um, this is an odd case this week uh, where Supercell had to pay $8.5 million to GRI. The amount is actually nothing, right? Um, but it opens up the question of if this is actually setting a bad precedent, right? Like any game that has gotcha-style monetization has to pay up to GRI, which doesn't make any sense. No, no, no. Um, yeah, Abhimanyu from Mass of the Meta seems to have caught up with the details. It seems like it's actually much more about server-side architecture patents, not gotcha. But again, this is just a very confusing article. Um, Apple One subscription. Um, they announced this last week that they're combining music, TV, Apple Arcade, iCloud, news, and fitness all into one convenient subscription. Um, from my point of view on the game side, Apple Arcade is included, right? Like it's great. It's obvious why Apple's been investing in it to try to beef up the value of the subscription. But the reality is just that the service Arcade is just not strong enough to pull people into the subscription. Both Arcade and TV haven't really executed on the content to make it worthwhile. So music is really the only driver here. So I'll be interested to, to track the metrics on this one. Well, what's interesting is this could put them in further legal peril, right? Uh, Spotify released a press release almost immediately saying, you know, condemning this action as completely anti-competitive. And now they're lumping at a bunch of other things, including gaming, which, again, is using their monopolistic power in order to sell services, which I I think, and the lawyers think that there is a case there versus kind of what Epic is doing. So this will get, you know, just a bigger, bigger target on their back, I suppose, going forward. Uh, Tencent is drawing U.S. government attention and could be split up similar to TikTok. What did I say? Did I not say this? I predicted this months ago. Dude, the fucking barrel of the gun is going straight at Tencent because they 
are a predator, right? And it's unfair practices, what they're doing, acquiring all our goddamn assets and we can't do shit in China, right? I'm very Trumpian, I understand that, but Jesus, like it's actually happening right now. I sold my 10 cents shares, I am out. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think the question is like, is Riot Supercell and every other Tencent acquisition starting to worry? Um, so similar to TikTok, US is starting to consider the same treatment for Tencent gaming companies. And I think it is the next logical step given what's happening with TikTok. I know the recent news has been that some of that deal is on hold, whether it goes to Oracle or not yet to be seen, but it seems like Tencent Gaming, of course, tracks data from billions of players, especially in the United States, in League of Legends, Clash of Clans, PUBG Mobile, Fortnite, and COD Mobile. That's alone enough to get worried that Tencent are piping this player data through China. So what could this mean? You know, could Clash of Clans, PUBG Mobile, um, Riot's US operations all be up for bidding by US companies? Like, that is the big speculation. And how could you actually effectively split up these companies just by the data that it accesses, right? Um, like, how do you make sure that there's a US operations of League of Legends versus rest of the world um, and piping that data through? I have no idea how you'd run that company. Yeah, I mean, this could be an absolute clusterfuck. So we will see what happens with this, but- uh, But at least I, but, Eric, uh, is, right. At least Eric I, is right about it. <laughs> at least I'm right about it. and then. On a political level, like if if maybe if um, Biden wins, then then maybe this will not become as big of an issue. But I think if if Trump wins, then this may actually become a big story for 2021. I would think. For sure. I got a question regarding this. There was this uh, disrupt disrupt 2020, which is actually a good name for a conference. <laughs> um, so so Supercell CEO was talking there, and and they brought this point up. And he said that, well, luckily, I'm paraphrasing, but he said basically like, well, luckily we're not 100%, like we're not 100% owned by Tencent or something like that. He kind of brushed it off, but- Slightly over 50%. Tencent owns slightly over 50? Yeah. Okay. So it affects them in the same way. Is there like some kind of a threshold? Is it just the 50%? You know, at the end of the day, I don't even know if ownership really matters per se. All it does, all that really would matter is do they have access or the ability to access the information that they're collecting on the users, right? So Mm -hmm. if they own 10% or they own 20%, if they own 50%, I mean, maybe there's a threshold that matters from a legal perspective that I don't know, but the reality of it is- I don't even think that matters. I, I think what matters is if you piss off Trump, right? Because Trump got pissed off at TikTok for something that happened at one of his rallies, right? <laughs> right, mean, right, right, right. They, they, <laughs> they basically, they, they took the spots in his rallies from all these, all these seats, right? Yeah. Uh, so you piss off Trump and yeah, stuff's going to happen. He doesn't care not. about the privacy. No, not. no, no. But, but, but again, but, but, but there was smoke, whether smoke, there's fire though. Like they were TikTok was collecting a ton of information that could have been shared with China, right? So if if they are actually have the ability, if the Chinese government has the ability of accessing the information that is being tracked by these subsidiaries, then that's all that really matters, right? I don't know if sh- ownership share matters, right? So that yeah. that's what he can basically rest his hat on. But you're right; it's more vindictive and and going, uh, you know, us versus China thing. It's more political than 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 you know than really worry about privacy or data per se, but it's very Trumpian. So so basically what Joe is saying, Trump better not play 
Clash Royale because that game will drive you crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like once you hit the losing streak, <laughs> they're banned. <laughs> Just one update from my side. So we actually did have a panel discussion about Unity. And one interesting comment actually that came up from the, uh, from the conversation was that some of the antitrust guys at Bloomberg actually think that, so they believe that on the EU side, that there's going to be some legal changes that does allow Epic to have a competitive store on iOS based on European laws. So we'll, we'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I thought that was pretty interesting since it seems like, you know, you talk to most of the people in the industry and they're, they don't believe Epic has a chance, but based upon what these guys are saying, uh, may, maybe Epic's got a chance to actually build out their, their more competitive ecosystem. So does this mean that Eric is going to move to EU? Because he doesn't, <laughs> such a big... <laughs> With my freaking Pixel 4a, dude, I'm telling you, this experiment, this experiment is failing, by the way. There are just things about this phone that are driving me insane. And I'm like, I sit here with my $350 phone, and then I have my $1,200 phone, and I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? But You're a man of conviction. I am, Tim, I am Team Tim Sweeney, and I'm going to keep moving forward and yeah. make this thing work. But uh, anyway. <laughs> So beautiful. All right, rolling into the news. Uh, we're going to start with the first article, which is Call of Duty Warzone Mobile seemingly leaked in Activision job post. And this is an article from Newsweek. But essentially, Call of Duty Warzone, which currently they currently claim to have 75 million global players. And Newsweek is reporting that based on a new job listing from the Activision official job board, a new mobile Call of Duty Warzone game may be coming. So the job board lists a post for an executive producer of features to work on, quote, a new AAA mobile FPS in the Call of Duty franchise. Further on, in a bullet describing responsibilities of the post, further on, it states that the position will, quote, harvest, adapt, and deliver the essential features from Warzone console and PC into their best mobile instantiation. Serve as primary point of contact on Warzone mobile leadership team for clarity and decisions on user-facing features, UX, and overall quality. So my take on this is that, if true, it will be really interesting to understand how they split or differentiate Call of Duty Warzone mobile and the existing Call of Duty mobile. Also, it wasn't clear who the studio is. So I doubt that this will be a Tencent studio. And this may also be a way of Activision to both capitalize on one, that Fortnite is no longer on iOS. And also that because of political stuff happening, that just in case things happen, that uh, they will continue to have a Call of Duty game on mobile that is not subject to political pressure. But uh, in the JD itself, it says, Basically, just that quote that the game is being is developing in collaboration with multiple Activision studio locations around the world. So based on that, it does seem like it sounds like it's an internal studio, but we'll see. And I don't know. What, what do you guys think? Any thoughts on this? Especially you, Mr. Eric Cannibalization Crest. What, what do you think? All right. So <laughs> I actually have given this no thought. I didn't even read this part when you were prepping so i'm going to go off the cuff here and say <laughs> the only reason that this makes sense is they're trying to capture more of the revenue right i think that would make more sense right so they're basically trying to develop this internally potentially which seems like a train wreck waiting to happen and 
and try to capture those users and that revenue because they're getting a very small share um, from uh, from from Tencent. But uh, I don't know if this makes sense. I don't I don't think they have the capability of executing against this full stop, right? So that this would be a, they're going to make a bad, worse game, and I don't know. That, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like they they should just either create another title completely. Um, but not like bifurcate this audience with this game. All right, let's relax a little bit because I know none of you three are even playing Call of Duty. The season 10 is going on, The Hunt. So, so, so let somebody talk who actually plays this game. Um, just when we're thinking about Call of Duty Mobile, we got 250 million, 15 million installs and about 320 million in net revenue. US bringing almost 50% of all the revenues. And at the moment, the game is pretty stable when it comes to downloads. So it gets about 8 million a month. And of course, there's a surge from India coming in uh, due to banning of PUBG, but that's going to that's gonna probably wind off in, in a while. Um, overall, revenue has been declining since May. So at the moment when, when COVID really hit, that the Call of Duty was, was up significantly. And what's important to note is that the seasons are not really bringing those big dump, uh, big bumps in in the um, in in the revenue. So that's that's interesting to to, uh, to point out. So when we think about game, the game itself, it initially had two games, then it had three games, and now it's back to two games. So at the moment, it divided into the first-person shooter tactical PvP game, and then there's the battle royale component. It used to have the sort of a shooter RPG. Uh, zombies mode, which was the first mode that they brought in, but that got taken away quickly. Um, and I think, yeah, and then, yeah, because it was just confusing. So the way it's structured is that the ranked match matches, the most important part of the game is actually the FPS, the tactical uh, five versus five and so forth. That kind of gameplay is, is, the, is the primary gameplay. And the battle royale is more like just for laughs type of a version. In my personal experience playing this game ever since it launches, it, it kind of creates a very convoluted progression in the game. And especially since they had the zombie game, that was even more crazier because you're kind of progressing in the battle royale, but kind of not because you need to do this other stuff and you don't need to do it. And, and the battle royale and the FPS are totally different type of games. Like if you like FPS, it doesn't mean that you like the battle royale and vice versa. So for me as a player, bringing in war zones as a separate skew, as a, pure battle royale game where it's all about that battle royale makes total sense and it would allow call of duty mobile to get back to what they really want to do and what is the main progression path and that is that tactical um fps uh you know pvp game so i'm i'm in for for the war zone i understand that there, there's going to be cannibalization as the players like myself will move to war zones because I mainly play only the, the battle royale mode, but I think it makes total sense. Yeah, I think the rumors suggest that that's what's gonna happen as well, so. Yeah, because yeah. they're smart, they're doing good things. It's a great game. Yeah, but it, it's gonna be, like Warzone is done by a completely different team, right? Like the, the I'm, I'm speculating here, but Most this looks like it's going to be just porting over Warzone, the PC game, mm -hmm. which is not in season 10 in season five <laughs> over to mobile right and then you have like what fortnite did where it's completely cross play 
Um, and of course, there's different matchmaking pools and these types of things, but at least your progression and your economy goes over. Um, mm -hmm. So from an RPI standpoint, Fortnite has a much higher RPI. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it is cross-play, cross-progression, cross-save. Um, so yeah, I think this makes some sense, but you have to speculate about just how much cannibalization there's going to be. And if uh, Activision's internal studios could actually execute on this because there's absolutely no way that Vince Ampella would be able to send out all of the Warzone co code to Timmy and then produce <laughs> the mobile version. Like that, that would never, ever, <laughs> ever happen. So it has to be an internal Wait, studio. Warzone's Infinity Ward, right? Yeah, which, oh, sorry, right? Uh, Vince is gone now. So yeah, Infinity Ward. So Infinity Ward would never allow that, right? Um, and okay, so... Timmy would never remove the Battle Royale portion of COD Mobile, right? Like it's still their own game. Are they going to start to negotiate that? And I would say Timmy's going to not kill that mode without <laughs> some sort of kicking and screaming, right? Because uh, that's saying like, hey guys, like this is our game. Now you're asking us to remove a major portion of it. And I think Timmy will actually beat Activision at a cosmetics pipeline here um, just because they have more people working on it. And I think Activision is tied down to what they can produce for console audiences. So yeah, I, I think Timmy it, watching it would it would make sense if it was another Tencent studio, but I think that the Tencent teams from the word on the street are tied up with another mobile cheater, but we'll see what happens. But if that were the case, then they could just continue what I speculate to be a 50-50 split on both SKUs. But yeah, I think if it's an internal studio, it would make more strategic sense for Activision given all the political stuff happening. And then that would, to your point, complicate the the, the economics. Yeah. My speculation is it has to be internal. I just don't think Infinity Ward, sorry, not Vince, Infinity yeah. Ward would they, ever they, sign off. They don't um, have a team that could execute on mobile. It's it's and, gonna be a train, it's gonna be a train wreck. Yeah. A and, fucking train wreck. And either way, even if they do get the game out, then it's gonna really strain the relationship between Tencent and Activision because it's directly cannibalizing. But on a strategic level, so I can see Bobby saying, hey, we should have this, we should build this out ourselves in just the Warzone mode so that we have something that ties back to the PC, that we build this ecosystem, that we get, increase the funnel. Like strategically, it makes total sense, you know, from up high. This is like one of those consulting things, right? Where some McKenzie and Bain guy goes, we should own this so we get a better, bigger. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, then footprint. Just, and then but the execution is impossible because they don't have one team that knows how to make mobile even <laughs> even 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 uh, uh, uh blizzard doesn't have any teams that can actually make mobile games oh no they so, do game? blizzard does they no, have they one don't. of the best teams they, in the world trust well, me they, they don't they, <laughs> they lost the hearthstone team they have not come out with a game since they started they have like six games that were in development that have four of which have been canceled i, I can't speak to design i'm saying technically the, the technical talent at blizzard no nah, the, the ability to no 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 disagree not anymore and and actually, one of the news stories that just just kind of broke recently is that Morheim is creating his own studio with two different teams, and so every single yeah. decent talent at Blizzard is going to be gone. Right? It is over. Right? Because he basically probably had his two years in which he was, um, you know, unable to compete or 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 get you know bring it bring over bring over employees, and so he's going to steal every single major person that matters at that studio which is going to make their ability to actually execute even worse right so I right, just more... so you know unity's entire product development roadmap comes from a blizzard team like they just 
there's this like GDC talk from 2017 that uh, Unity obviously watched and they just basically that's their product roadmap. But if, if that were to be the case and they have such sophisticated development, why have we not seen a game come out of Blizzard? It's not that's, just technology, That was three right? years ago. <laughs> it's not that just was three technology. years ago. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. They don't have the capability of building out mobile games. No, I'm, I'm saying technically they've got some... And from what I hear from... Yeah, but those guys are going to go is what I'm trying to tell you. is like those people <laughs> yeah, don't we'll stick see. around. They're, they're, they're loyal okay. to Morheim. They're not loyal to fucking Bobby at, <laughs> at Activision. No way, man. Or these freaking Bane McKenzie douchebags that are coming in, telling them what to do. Forget that. It's over. All right, moving on. <laughs> Uh, oh, now, oh, now we're talking about this mice nuts mobile <laughs> shit. All right. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. You were on the you were on the podcast with Stillfront. You were in love with them. I, I heard the no, gut no, no. Tone. I, I I appreciate what Stillfront's doing, but Nanobit. I mean, come on. Okay. Really? Right, so no, this is the Ragnarok of acquisitions, right? Oh my lord! <laughs> uh, but I would actually like to take a look at how there there seems to be quite a bit of acquisitions or a lot of of moves happening right now. So I'd love to actually evaluate how things are looking because I know Miska, you and and Eric put together that uh, blog post already talking about the Ragnarok of acquisitions coming from IDFA. So I wonder, you know, is this just a sign of the times? Um, so yeah, Stillfront, we did a great uh, podcast episode. Joe and Eric did that interviewing Stillfront, and I would definitely recommend listening to it because I think that speaks to a lot of why this deal actually happened. Um, so they have acquired three studios this year now. Um, so Stormate, 300 million, and Candy Writer previously. And the stock price since January 2020 has actually tripled. And just based on this deal is 11% up. Um, so in total, they have they are a collective of 14 studios, which includes Good Game and Kick's Eye. And they seem to mostly just be purchasing studios with a few strong, mature titles that are just struggling to get that next hit. And basically just buying for the existing successful service-based games and just leaving them be. Um, so uh, we talked a lot about that on the podcast, being a city-state model. Um, so Nanobit was purchased for 100 million with up to 148 million based on uh, EBITDA in 2021 and 2022. And that's 70% in cash and 30% in new shares from Stillfront. Um, so Croatian, uh, the, uh, Nanobit is a Croatian developer that focuses on narrative stories, which are predominantly female focused. Their games are Taboo Stories, which is the recent one, My Story and Hollywood Story. And Stillfront mentions in their blog post that their EBITDA is multiple. Uh, the EBITDA multiple is 6.4x, which is roughly in line with Story Stormate, which really speaks to their strategy, right? Like they basically take a look at the studios, look at their profitability, and just pay the market rate for that. Uh, Sensor Tower has them roughly at 40 million in revenue for the last 12 months, with no clue on ad revenue. I don't know how that factors in there. Um, and they've actually been declining in revenue over the last, um, since April, since uh, COVID hit. It seems their new game Taboo got a spike during COVID, but has since been coming back down to earth as well with other narrative games like Choices. So narrative games as a model is definitely a different beast. It's very content dependent. It's very light content, but a very sustained engagement from its player base. It's more like a retention curve of a web service than the retention curve of a mobile game. And the model also seems very dependent on user acquisition because you can see the revenue tends to spike mostly in line with downloads and the sustain does not last as long. 
And these games tend to go for very sexualized ads to pull players in with a lot of focus on creative for user acquisition. Oh, did you say, oh, I was falling asleep, but you said sexualized. (laughs) (laughs) So I just see this as a continuation of still friends, city state acquisition model. They basically just picked up a mid-tier developer uh, with enough EBIT and paid the market rate for that. I don't see any synergies here, right? They're likely just going to mostly leave them alone. Um, And I see maybe some upside with the genre in terms of narrative interactive uh, has been expanding. Um, And also IDFA, speculating here, but when it becomes enforced, it feels like this is a pretty broad UA strategy that's still going to work even when IDFA is running. So I don't see them getting negatively impacted there. Um, And like the only other thing that I can see in terms of synergies internally is maybe with IDFA, they start looking into how they can cross promote between Storm 8 games and these games. That's about it. You know, with all due respect, this is a team that probably no one else wanted. You know, like, I mean, I, I can't even imagine anybody looking at this company and saying, oh, uh, wow, this is a great strategic guy. No, no, that, that's not true. There, there are a number of folks that looked at them. Yeah, yeah. Quite a few. Not so, for 100 million. Are you kidding me? So, Dude, so this, here's, is, this is out of bounds. The, 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 why the story is interesting is, I'm sorry, it's not because Nanobit that much, but it's mainly because of Silfront. And because since 2020, their their stock has increased by almost 290 since the beginning of 2020 of this year, it's increased almost by 290%. And as Adam said, when we look at the Nanobit portfolio, there's really three interactive games. The first one is My Story, the second one is Hollywood Story, and then the third one, Taboo Stories, um, as the name name indicates. It's, uh, yeah, it's very sexual. Anyway, so My Story was the first game, and it's pretty much collapsed as of late. And this collapse of the game in terms of revenue coincides with the launch of Taboo Stories. Now, when the Taboo Stories launched, just like Adam said, it had a big spike, but it really quickly dropped after that. And what's really sad is that my story, the original hit, is not actually recovering after, after the, uh, the blast of Taboo Stories. So to me, this looks like a cross-promotion gone wrong, where you cross-promote players to one game and they're actually not coming back and they're not sustaining in, in, one, in, in the game you cross-promoted them to. Uh, but their third title, The Hollywood Story, is is growing, and according to Sensor Tower, is you know about a two month, two million a, a month, and and with pretty stable installs. Whereas the installs for My Story, as well as Taboo Stories, are have have significantly collapsed. Um, and when we look at the uh, the subgenre as a whole, so as Adam said, the uh, the IDFA is is a big thing that is kind of like uh, is a, is a is a big risk going in going ahead. And then there's another risk that is basically dangling above the, above the, uh, the head of, of these companies due to the highly sexual ads. Good morning, Eric. Uh, and, oh. and that is, <laughs> and that's the, uh, and that's, that's basically the, the, the major platforms like Facebook and Google. I, I don't think they're, they're too excited about these ads being shown to a lot, to audience that complains about them. Um, and when you look at the other uh, performance of the whole, Subgenre, the uh, the interactive story games. We can see that the revenues of the top three, the chapters, episodes, and choices, they were up significantly. Like we're talking double revenues for chapters, episodes were up by forty percent, choices up by twenty percent. So every game was up, and of course, uh, Nanobit was up with them, but it wasn't actually as much up as the uh, as the other ones. So to describe it plainly, Nanobit is sort of a middle of the pack in a genre where the top three are taking nearly 80% of all revenues. So that's good to keep in mind. Now, 
when I was doing this analysis, I, I read through a very good analysis written by the, uh, the newsletter Master the Meta. So if you haven't signed up to that newsletter, it makes sense. Uh, very nice breakdowns every week. And they wrote, why Stillfront bought them? And in my personal opinion, the, uh, the analysis was very good, but it missed the mark. Uh, or not, not really missed the mark. It, it kind of tried to come up with more reason that needs to be of why Stillfront bought this company. So Master of the Meta, the guys broke it down to four reasons. Number one was genre diversification. And they said the genre diversification is a key strategic objective to predictably grow the business by spreading risk across different gameplay types and audiences. Second, there are still gaps in Stillfront genre reach. So in other words, when your portfolio is diversified across genres, if there's a new game, say Pokemon Go or or I don't know, Call of Duty launching, your whole portfolio, if it's not focused on shooters or similar type of games, uh, will not take as big of a hit if you have diversified through genres. And I agree with this, but but in order to, you know, you know, in addition to that, you have also have to have genre mastery. You have to know how to do live operations. And you have to do, know how to do user acquisition. And while Nanobit has shown that they can do user acquisition, uh, they, their, their uh, installs are, are among the highest uh, out of the uh, the mid pack, even though the RPI is among the lowest, uh, you still have to kind of note that they might not be as good in live operation because the growth of the of the company has come through short lived reskins from now, and live ops is also a big question since their 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 biggest hit, which was my story, has collapsed after the launch of another game. So that's 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 really worrisome when when you look at the uh, that. The, uh, the diversification. So Adam, you had a you had a note. Yeah, no, I just completely agree. I just felt like genre diversification just doesn't feel like value to still from. I think they just pay for Evit, and I think that's, yeah. that's it. And I exactly. Think this, the idea that genre diversification is additional synergy value post or pre IDFA doesn't make sense. It just yeah. dilutes your experience. Your right, experience. and part of what we were talking, even when he was on the on the on the on the call with us, is that so he's going to listen to this and. Anyway, they're bankers, right? So they're buying to what you just said, Adam. They're they're buying EBIT, right? They're not necessarily they strategically buying assets to like compete in different markets, et cetera, et cetera. And and they're buying EBIT, and that helps pump up the valuation and makes them more wealthy, right? That's kind mm -hmm. of the way it works. I know they want to build like a you know um, index fund of games. Yeah, kind of like that. They're a consolidator, and I think yeah. this is so, part of that strategy. But I, I don't see this as strategic. I think yeah. it's just so. So let me go through some other points. Some other points mentioned in the Master of the Meta. So they they also said that number two was sub sub genre dominance, and they said Nanobit is a top five market leader in this sub genre on a revenue basis. As of Q2 2020, it accounted for 16% of the sub sub genre revenues which placed at number four position. More importantly, the company has been able to quadruple subgenre market share since the start of 2017. So I also put in a lot of games in this genre into Sensor Tower, and I didn't get quite those numbers. And I have to say that this is a, a little bit of a creative use of numbers since they launched a lot of reskins and got the uh, the below average boost, boost from the rising ties of, of COVID. And the fact is that interactive story revenue trends, trends uh, Fuck, I got lost in the words. Anyway, so what I'm trying to say here is 
that they have launched a lot of new games and there's not a lot of new games coming in. So that allowed them to increase their share in the sub genre. But at the same time, when the top three are taking over 80% of the revenue, the increase is actually quite small. When you, when you, when you take a lot of games out, then the increase looks bigger. But I don't feel that Nano, like I, it's not even a feeling. I don't see Nanobit as being one of the key players in the genre. Uh, when the because you would have to be in the top three to really be a key. Everybody outside top three is, in Eric's words, basically eating mice nuts. The third point that that in the newsletter they talked about audience expansion, and it's and I'm just quoting: it's relatively obvious that still still fun moves into other subgenres. Subgenres it also acquires different differentiated audiences from these subgenres. Having this diversity protects the entire group against frequently turbulent user acquisition market. With IDFA apocalypse looming, the pressure to cross-promote audiences within Stillfront titles does increase. Nanobit is clearly a great fit to boost the representation of female audience within Stillfront portfolio. To me, this makes sense. Um, if Just as I mentioned, if there are big UA battles going on in mid-core, this kind of protects them from that because they can continue investing into, into this game. But then again, when we think about the structure of Stillfront, where it is sort of like an index instead of centralized driven um, company, it's it's um yeah it, it it makes sense it's just not as as clear cut, and the fourth reason uh, which I disagree so I agree with the audience expansion but I disagree with it with the fourth one which is talent and skill growth, and the Nanobit is based out of Zagreb, Croatia. It is not you know the the most hotbed of studios. In fact, I don't I, before Nanobit I didn't know any other studio coming in from Zagreb, and while I think Croatia is a really really beautiful country. Um, when I think about Croatia, I think about mainly the coastline and this city is not even close to the coastline where, where people will travel. Like I, I would understand it would be one of those cities by the coast. You would put in the pictures, like, do you want to move and make games here? I'm like, okay, they're, they're onto something. But Zagreb is according to my geography in the middle of the Balkans. So, um, might be a really beautiful city but doesn't strike me as, as, the, as the most talent dense city in, in for, for gaming. I, I could be wrong. So in the end, as, as Adam said, the facts are that everybody hates adult narrative games uh, down, down to likely the platforms because of the ads that they make. And this is also the, the narrative approach to not only game progression, but also the, the creatives is something that a lot of puzzle developers have taken. And like, for example, tactile games. And when you consider the monetization of a puzzle game versus the monetization of an interactive uh, story game, it's totally different, different level. So I, I think that games with better monetization progression models are able to outfit these developers. And as you guys said, we all know what, what Stillfront is after. Like you can listen to the podcast, you can watch their, um, any of their, of their, of their um, um, investor relation presentations. They're after EBIT accretive deals. And the only reason why Stillfront acquired Nanobit is because it offers a very decent multiple. So it's a very smart acquisition. Uh, and while I do applaud Master the Meta for the in-depth analysis, I think the reason of buying this game is, or this studio is actually much more simple. It's just, it makes money. That's That's it. Well said. Yeah, so I think from my perspective, the interesting question here is why now? So word on the street has been that Nano's Bit's been a target of acquisition for at least the past two years. Uh, kind of rumors were that the, the main issue has been valuation. And so kind of to the point that Adam made earlier, we've got 
IDFA deprecation happening. And that could have, I think there's two things happening. One is that if you can't run these sexualized Eric ads, or if something happens on the ad front, then certainly they're gonna be in a little bit of danger. So I think from that perspective, and then the other thing to notice that as we've seen with some other companies acquiring companies with a large user base, that there is some potential. I don't think we fully understand in terms of the potential to use IDFV that may be potentially interesting. Also think that this specific genre is from an economics perspective, at least, and at least from a marketing and ROAS yield perspective, generally favorable. So payback periods on these kinds of games are generally on a relative basis uh, better than other games. And I also think that because of their location and being in Zagreb or wherever they are, that for this kind of game, having a very low cost structure uh, to churn out that content pipeline is advantageous, especially if they can uh, kind of figure out the other strategic and product uh, components to help potentially drive this game to to be more successful. And then I think the other thing to note is that I actually believe that there is additional room for subgenre growth, that you can go after adjacent markets and that there are potential. So I, I could certainly see this market to actually double in size over time. It may not happen all of a sudden, but over the next three, four or five years that this uh, specific market for narrative-based games could potentially double. I mean, not to throw salt in your game, but sure. I mean, we already saw Fox Next cancel their narrative game, right? Yep. And then we saw another game canceled from a very big studio. Uh, Galoo's game was pulled off the market. Yeah, and uh, NBC Universal also had a narrative-based game. Because, because part of the problem with these games is it's a total content treadmill. And yeah, maybe in Croatia, you could build yes, content for exactly. pennies on the dollar. That makes sense, but it doesn't make sense at scale in the Western, you know, big publishers, right? Potentially. Yeah, but think about, think about writers. Think about writers. Who is writing your narrative? Because it has to be, after all, it has to be engaging English narrative to, to be playing these games. Do you yeah. have those great writers in Zagreb? Yeah, I, I don't think that's... No, it's more of a content thing, like uh, arts, assets, and, you know, story-based stuff. I bet... But it's all—it's a combination of all things. I—I I, I don't like this business all that much, frankly. I think it's just kind of a. Yeah, it's very it's different than the most mobile things, right? Like it, even yeah. just looking at the success of this business, right? You said ROAS is pretty strong. That the actual payback window is pretty short relative to other genres. But also just like the retention of these players is very, very spiky, right? I know. And, and, and I look at ep episodes. If you actually just look at episodes, the chart, I mean, it looks remarkable in terms of, of, of revenue. But then you look at the downloads, it's like, Jesus, like they have to maintain these levels of downloads to maintain these levels of revenue. There's, it, it's not stacking at all, right? It seems like people either are churning in and out and they're only doing like a dollar and change in revenue per install. I mean... I don't know. I don't like it. It also feels very different than what we talked about on the podcast with Stillfront, right? Where they talk a lot about the games they like to purchase are ones that retain players for a very long time. And it's likely that they can keep a, you know, a niche player base for quite a while. But this is a very different business model than football managers and the other browser-based MMOs that Stillfront typically has. Well, Zynga talked about forever franchises and bought Rolic. Yeah, no, Rollick makes no fucking sense. I've already said that. That's stupid. I think they were securing advertising revenue, full stop. Or if you believe Mr. Uh, oh, I forgot his name. Damn it. Anyway. 
or what? <laughs> no, no. Uh, well, Bernard Kim, if you believe Bernard Kim, it was, it was in order to combat IDFA. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right, dude. You don't even know what IDFA was when you're looking, contemplating this acquisition. <laughs> um, all right, let's move on to some real news. This is like one of the biggest like sea change business news stories in, in forever, right? And, yeah. and, and we're talking about freaking teams in Croatia, dude. We don't care. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Zenimax was just bought out for $7.5 Take it away, AT. You're still in my news. So, yeah, uh, massive on Monday, right? Like, here we thought NextGen was actually going to be pretty zipped up after the Sony announced last week and how PlayStations went on pre-order. But uh, this Monday, Microsoft purchased Zenimax slash Bethesda for $7.5 billion. Um, already talked about pulling all of their content into Game Pass. Um, and if you don't know Zenimax or Bethesda, that's Elder Scrolls, that's Skyrim, that's Fallout, that's Doom, Quake, Wolfenstein, um, and upcoming games like Deathloop. Um, so all of a sudden, Microsoft has access to a library of amazing content. And the question is, how are they going to use it, use it and how exclusive is it going to be? Because right now, number one, it's not actually not very clear how exclusive they're going to be using this because reports are saying that Microsoft will be looking at each game on a case-by-case -case basis, especially with games like Deathloop actually being advertised during Sony's PlayStation promo last week as a PlayStation exclusive. So uh, they've said that it will still be on PS5, but will it no longer be an exclusive for PlayStation, right? And uh, it's more likely that these start to become more exclusive later in the console cycle rather than the beginning. And I'm really wondering about games like the upcoming, you know, sequel to Elder Scrolls. Um, will that be cost effective to be only on Xbox and only within Game Pass? Same thing with Fallout. Um, can these actually work within Game Pass on day one? That's pretty risky. Uh, number two, of course, Bethesda is a great company to acquire for premium titles that can drive units, um, but very little expertise in anything around service. Uh, Elder Scrolls Online is probably the one bit here which actually shows some future thinking. So, you know, Microsoft has said they will mostly leave Bethesda alone to keep their quality up, but we'll see what happens, you know, over time as they try to drive subscriptions through Game Pass. Because at the end of the day, Game Pass needs services, long-lasting games. And they've already started pushing companies like Obsidian, who used to work with Bethesda, um, towards sandboxes with their game called Grounded. But seven point five billion dollars is this actually the right value eric what do you think okay first off you're crazy of course elder scrolls and fallout and their sci-fi game are going to be exclusive to microsoft or but, I mean, but i'm asking like are they gonna be like they're going day one in the game pass right of course that's that they're be... just they're building the service i mean i think that's that's the whole point of this acquisition so it is possible that they charge 70 dollars for these games on sony's platforms that is possible maybe that's probably the best the only other alternative but i think they just keep these as exclusives for xbox game pass but then also if people are you can buy it for 70 dollars on my, xbox as well but that's the whole point of this acquisition right seven and a half billion dollars is insane by the way um, but, uh, but th that's the only reason that this makes sense. And to be clear, like Bethesda is the Elder Scrolls and Fallout team is like one team. Right. Um, and that, that is really the only real big drivers of, of this business, right. You know, Doom and Quake and Wolfenstein and I don't know what's the other game. I always forget those games cause they don't really matter. 
<laughs> right? No, I but mean like Deathloop and Deathloop and, and Dishonored. Stuff. Dishonored, right? Dishonored is an amazing, beautiful game that's really well loved and respected, but it doesn't sell any freaking units, right? So anyway, this is basically to have a big RPGs that 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 are 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 genre defining games on this 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 platform, right? On this service, and that that's what it is, right? So um, I think. But, but do of, you feel like that could actually be profitable, right? Like. No, that's no, fuck <laughs> okay, no, dude. Okay, okay. Yeah, I just so want to make is, sure that's separate. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is, this is, I, I am falling down right now as an analyst, right? I've had this happen to me before, right? Where valuations get so out of control and my cynicism and my pragmatism just gets in my way of, of logic, of reason, right? Well, because none of this is really reasonable, dude. When Scopely is worth 3 billion, Bethesda's worth seven and a half billion, and Unity is at fucking 18 billion, 22 right? billion. I am out, I am completely out of touch with what, what's real right now. So, one of my good friends who's an analyst as well, basically said, look, Eric, you need to reset your mindset in terms of valuation in order to, to survive these times and i'm like i will try to do that but it is fucking ridiculous that they got bought for seven and a half billion because literally two years ago they ea and activision balked at the idea of three and a half billion right because they are they don't make that much revenue they make one game that makes real money every six or eight years right and so there's no way on a financial like cash flow basis you can justify this this valuation unless you're microsoft right from microsoft's perspective you're putting a big huge game in their service which you could actually probably build a model that makes sense maybe right but for ea and activision there's no way that these this company's worth seven and a half billion there's no way they could justify that with their shareholders with anybody now of course, now I'm completely going back as to what I just said, is that now I have to really kind of rethink my, my perception of what value is in this kind of crazy market where everything is getting funded. But nonetheless, this, is, this, this deal only makes sense to Microsoft in my view. The $7.5 billion is insane. I think part of this was probably because Warner fell through and you know, Warner wasn't, didn't want to be sold. Um, so this was probably the next step. And I have to admit, that they now have a more competitive position in the console space than they had last week. So like this, I think this does make a difference and this will bring people over to the platform if they, if they are strategic about it and they do it in the right way. Cool, yeah, I mean, valuations, it's just a sign of the times. It's just crazy, it's probably go get your money while you can. And for me, I think the interesting part is just that the, you know you mentioned the unity valuation. Uh, it's over twenty two billion, so more valuable than Epic. And not not to go too off topic, but I think that's you know I know you can't compare private and public valuations, but that sounds crazy to me. But getting back to this point, I'm wondering now, like with Sony, Microsoft, Tencent, all these acquisitions of console companies happening, who's left out there as independents? And do we think, or do you guys think, since you guys are the experts, that there's going to be continued acquisitions of anyone independent? Are we going to have an ecosystem without any large independents out there? What, what do you guys think? Well, Bethesda was the last really big independent. I mean, we have um, uh, Bungie, right? But I, I think they're fiercely independent. But th I mean, there's always possibility there that they get acquired. And then CD Projekt, you know, like oh, yeah. my short my short thesis is falling apart on CD Projekt because now they are an obvious target for anybody that wants to 
make a big bet, but they're also at uh, this this valuation range, which is freaking insane, by the way. And that game is still not tracking well <laughs> versus expectations. <laughs> um, but I, there's just not that many big teams left. And you know, Warner and and Bethesda were the two. And Bethesda has been for sale. Just just to, just to be clear, this game company has been for sale for four years, right? And no one's no one's touched it, right? Um, but Zenimax, I think those guys are pretty sophisticated, and they're they're kind of waiting for the right valuation. They were patient, and I think I think they did a really good job for their shareholders. So more money, more money, right? But um, anyway, I don't know of any other teams. Do you guys know of any other teams that make sense uh, that of scale, not like the little ones, like these Croatian teams? <laughs> no, not off the top of my head right now. Um, but to be honest, that's part of my job so i'm not gonna <laughs> why just go acquire warner brothers you know you know just go go buy warner brothers <laughs> all right are we moving on moving on all right so now you know like all this i wrote these notes like before this acquisition was announced so now like <laughs> it's like kind of changes changes the calculation a little bit to some degree right so basically there's no article here we just want to talk about like sony and microsoft strategy for next gen this big acquisition is going to make a uh, big difference, I think, in terms of the longer term health of Microsoft, because I think it does differentiate their service. Um, and despite Sony's strengths, you know, Microsoft is is obviously clearly building their strength. So I'm just going to walk through kind of next gen strategies for both the consoles um, and kind of describe that and just open it up for discussion. But so first off, Sony. Sony's definitely in the driver's seat here. Um, they clearly have the best first party lineup um, compared to Microsoft, even with Bethesda, frankly. Um, they also have huge momentum from last cycle. And the I, and I want to just try to quantify this to you, is that at the end of the cycle for 360 and PS3, on average, people were buying two games for, per install um, over the prior 12 months. So this time around, though, we were seeing like 1.8 games for uh, Microsoft and two and two and three quarters for PS5. So basically, in essence, on the PS5, PS4, uh, PS4 owners are buying 50 percent more games um, in the past 12 months than they are on Microsoft's console. So huge advantage in terms of momentum. And this is what I always call as the active platform. It means. Whenever you go out and buy a third-party game, you're buying it on Sony, and that's kind of what the data is kind of suggesting. So with this kind of momentum, it's going to be really hard for Sony to lose because everyone's just going to basically um, move on to the next next version of the of, of whatever platform they're playing. Um, and the other thing they have is they have absolute dominant market share in Japan and, and Europe, and particularly continental Europe. They just own continental Europe. UK is a little bit more of a good mix for Microsoft, but still they've lost a lot of ground in the UK as far as I understand it. And then the other thing they have, which is kind of unsurprising is they have really the support of enthusiast press. Like they just have kind of an overwhelming voice out of the majority of the enthusiast press that love Sony, like Kotaku, IGN, and these other outlets. They just basically have most favored nations. So basically in essence, this is Sony's market to lose to some degree. Now, the weaknesses, as I've said many times, there's absolutely no exclusive content for next-gen console, consoles, full stop, right? Let's, let's just be clear here. Like, it is going to be years before we see that. God of War is not going to be exclusive. Horizon's not going to be exclusive. Obviously, Spider-Man, Gran Turismo, like, 
there's nothing that's going to be exclusive until like maybe year four of this cycle, but they still have the best content regardless. Um, I think there is a higher entry of uh, into the market. So the price of, of these consoles is a lot higher. And I think that is, is a weakness in general, and it may hurt them in year two and year three of the cycle. But overall, I'm not too concerned because I just think the activity on these consoles is pretty high. And, and, the, and I think during COVID, we broadened the audience a bit, will help kind of eliminate any type of uptick in, 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 in penetration of the, of the consoles. Um, they also don't have a competitive subscription pro offering and they basically doubled down. They basically said, look, we're not doing this. This would just destroy uh, our business. And, and I have to agree with them. They cannot do this kind of subscription model because they have this content that's super expensive to make and it doesn't make sense for them. And finally, and this is kind of more of indicative of Sony in general, their hardware marking is atrocious. It is absolutely atrocious. It just misses the mark in every single way. It's like old school. It doesn't really bring new people into the market. It's just kind of focusing on the super core and their super core IP. It's just stupid. They didn't do playbook, you know? I mean, I think they've done a good job of marketing the actual console, like of uh, 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 the communication and, and the games, et cetera. But they've just done a really poor job. The TV advertising for the hardware is stupid, but it's almost irrelevant. All right, for Microsoft, their strengths are really the subs subs subscription subsidies, right? Where they're offering 25 to $35 a month for the hardware and software. I think that's really compelling to certain buyers. And I think it actually will bring um, more people into the ecosystem. It, there'll probably be more cross ownership of consoles. Particularly, I think last cycle, we just didn't see that many PS4 and Xbox One cross ownership. I think this cycle with the subscription that kind of offers that ability for people to buy both, particularly the core guys. They have a higher powered console, which I don't think freaking matters, but um, I don't think from a third party perspective, they're gonna optimize against that because that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and I, they do have the lowest entry price, which I frankly think doesn't matter. The $300 skew does not make sense. Uh, you're not, any self-respecting gamer is not gonna buy a console that only could do 1440 when they can buy one that does 4K at 60, right? So particularly early in the cycle, I don't think that matters, um, but maybe longer term uh, that might help them. And then obviously this Bethesda deal gives them a, a much more broader appeal style game that, that could, could move the needle for them. So that, that, that was a good get. And if they keep looking at companies, uh, opportunities like that, although there's, like we said earlier, there's not that many out there, I think that's interesting. All right, their weaknesses, they basically, their first party is kind of not doing well, right? The Bungie deal, Bungie guys just could not, sorry, Bungie, sorry. <laughs> 343 could not execute against um, their game. The only exception to that is Minecraft. I think that's interesting longer term. Uh, and the, the other thing is they've lost all momentum. They lost complete share over the last cycle in the US and Europe. And so that's a challenge. Um, and then continental Europe and Japan in, in particular are a train wreck for Microsoft. So. My thinking here is that Sony's going to win and they're going to win huge, right? Particularly in the first two or three years of the cycle. I'm already hearing that we're only going to get half the allocation from Microsoft that we see from Sony uh, this holiday and, and for the first six months. Uh, they could have a stronger back half with lower price points and, and subscription subsidies, et cetera. And they also could create some kind of opportunistic, you know, hits from Minecraft and, and maybe other exclusives that would help drive it. But really, Sony is the one that's going to attract the main audience, the really core guys. Um, and, and the only 
potential problem for Sony is they really have no plan to attract a mass market. So that's maybe where Microsoft kind of wins in the back half. So anyway, that's a quick take on my thinking. What do you think, um, Adam? Yeah, completely agree. Sony's advantage is, is definitely coming into the fall. And I think everybody's trying to bring make something of the 299 Xbox, but it really doesn't matter. Um, I don't know if you've been tracking the PlayStation and Xbox pre-orders. They were just a fiasco over the last couple of weeks. But it really points to the reason why, you know, this $300 version doesn't matter. The first months are just going to be a frenzy for any edition. So next-gen interest is high. There is no bargain shoppers at this point. So a $300 SKU with 1440p just feels like a half step to the next generation. And I think price-sensitive buyers are just going to stay on current-gen because there's really no reason to switch over. Um, so offering a half step to next gen just doesn't feel like the right right move. Um, but yeah, I'm not so sure about this back half, right? Like trying to think through how does Microsoft respond and claw back through this generation? And I'm mainly thinking on it, the economics of it, right? Because we've, we've criticized Microsoft quite a bit around Game Pass and a content subscription model, right? And I think, right, like Eric, in terms of this next cycle, how do you actually see the hardware uh, subscriptions and the Game Pass actually driving late adopters to this. Yeah, <laughs> I have to. I think you have to combine it in two ways. One is that you get the core gamers who just find the value proposition of having the subscription just too much to ignore, right? And then they get access to things like Bethesda's games and Halo and others that that make it compelling. Um, but I mean, there is, I guess my assumption here is that they come out with content that actually appeals to the broader audience, as opposed to what we're seeing right now for, you know, the initial core audience. So they come out with the new version of something like Guitar Hero or Rock Band or Toys to Life. And maybe it's maybe it's as simple as something like a really compelling offering for Minecraft to, to expand into the lower, you know, younger kids, or et cetera. But you know, I, it's just more speculation than anything. For me, like the first three years is all that matters right now and Sony's going to win. Yeah, but then can the economics of a content subscription actually work for Bethesda's style games? And if you're saying that the the real winners are going to be the ones where they can try to expand the audience so they go for Guitar Hero, that doesn't sound like Bethesda. That sounds like, you know, a whole new service, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, you, are you to like the unit economics of, of putting all this content in one service? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, Bradley, I would love to, to know some of the data scientists at Microsoft that are trying to build up these models to say, you know, Skyrim inside of Game Pass is going to make more money in Game Pass than it ever would have outside of Game Pass, right? Um, well, this is the part that I've been saying forever is I, I don't like any of this to some degree for the overall market because I think it cheapens content, right? Any type of subscription model that offers all you can eat is basically, particularly with new games, is is basically cheapening content. And to your point, no, I don't think there's any way they're going to make as much money uh, with or without Sony as a platform on Elder Scrolls as they would have if they were standalone, right? Yeah. I don't, so I don't think it's not possible. Yeah, so the 7.5 billion is, you know, them trying to to match Sony the best they can on content. And even when they have Skyrim and Game Pass, it's not as if all of a sudden they're going to be making more money than they would have 
before because of it. It's just right. them trying right. to make it as compelling but of a know, situation but, as You possible. know what I was, the one thing I was thinking about though, that man, this means that Sony's in it to win it. Now I'm oh, sorry, Microsoft is in it to win it. Hmm. I know that seven and a half billion dollars is like literally money under the mattress for Sony, uh, for Microsoft, sorry. But, um, but the reality is to get this kind of deal approved is actually a huge deal for them, right? Mm -hmm. It's a huge deal that means that they're in it. Like they're gonna keep making consoles and they're gonna be participate. And that is actually a very good news overall in general. Um, and so maybe they have, I think it's gonna be harder and harder for them to make money at this business <laughs> the way they're going. But uh, the only way that they make sense is if they expand the market outside of the super core, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I, that's the part that I'm really trying to struggle with. And I'd love for somebody to come on the podcast that is an advocate for subscriptions and can speak to a lot of like the underlying models that could make these things viable. Because to me, there's two two numbers that matter in a subscription, right? It's the the, the number of subscriptions, right? Like the, the, the total addressable market, the amount of people that you can pull in. And as well, like if you can retain those subscribers for longer than you normally would. So if you pull somebody in for 15 bucks a month, to play a $70 game, you hope you can retain them for long enough to pay back that initial 70 that you would have made on that game. As well, you would have multiplied your audience because now you get a lot more people coming into the sub than you ever would before. And that that makes sense to me. But again, like then it comes back to their strategy around products. You need more services in there and you need more games that can broaden the market rather than just appeal to that niche. It becomes the, the stranger things versus the office problem for Netflix. And how do you value those two different types of content within the subscription? It's a very difficult problem, right? And I think it it kind of mashes up every single game into subscription and becomes very hard to see the value of adding Skyrim or Skyrim sequel to your subscription. And I think like it's coming back to services, if Microsoft wants to build out a mass market thing that can pull in a ton of people and retain them, they're looking right now at Gen Z Minecraft audience, which I think is the right one and trying to build a service that can work for them. Um, they've shifted Obsidian over to that direction. They've shifted Rare over to that direction. And that can make sense if they can make the right content. But the problem is they're not just competing with Sony there. They're also competing with free-to-play games. So all of a sudden you've built this amazing sandbox inside of Game Pass, but now you're competing against Roblox, Fortnite, and every other third-party surface or, or service that can scale faster by being free and being completely cross-platform. So I'm just worrying about that idea that they can build this great service within this game pass that could take over the market when they're competing, when they're basically effectively, you know, cutting themselves off at the knees by not being free and not being cross play. Does that make sense? You, you know, this whole strategy is most likely precipitated by some McKinsey study of some kind, right? Like, so it's this, this strategy is probably most likely 90% chance it's been developed by guys who don't really understand the video games market, but uh, I'll stand so, that. so, all right. I'm not going to disagree with that because I'll, any chance I get to make fun of uh, McKinsey <laughs> and Bain people, I will. Um, this is Microsoft guys. Yes. Right. And then Microsoft, the ones that are drop shipping people all over the freaking industry that are just like, you know, fucking robots from McKinsey and Bain. So you're totally right about that. Having said that, <laughs> in this case, if you have a broader strategy that is a Microsoft strategy, right? There, there is kind of like 
you don't need to be profitable in this business in order to like make it make sense, right? That's the kind of thing. It's like they may be thinking far more meta than even we are in terms of why they're actually pursuing this, you know, in terms of getting access to this user base or, you know, building out their ability to track everything we do, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know, right? So yeah, these guys, these guys are probably working overtime in terms of building out these strategies because I will say this with reasonable certainty. If you were a standalone company like EA or any of the others, none of this makes sense, right? Even Sony says it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to build a subscription service to our new content, full stop. Like they've said that in the press a week ago, right? And and from a financial perspective, right? Um, So Microsoft is just kind of playing by a different set of rules to some degree in terms of of making this happen. Um, But to your point, like, that's why I think we need to get this deal with Apple and Google done so that they can bring their content there to increase the funnel there. Their PC strategy makes a lot of sense because that is a huge platform that people could come into the ecosystem. But they don't have the content right now. And the, and the assumption is the only way that they could make this thing scale is that they build out content that's more mass market, right? Maybe it's Manticore. Maybe it's, I don't know. Maybe it's doing a deal with Epic. I don't know, right? We'll see. But they're building... I, I do think they're building the um, the nuts and bolts to to kind of make a go of, of making it more broad than last cycle. Yeah, I agree. But I think Sony's strategy, even though it's you know just build on what they had before, makes more sense to me. Yeah, and I agree. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of talking at both sides of my mouth right now because I'm I'm basically suggesting that Sony's. Sony is basically doing exactly what they did last cycle. There's like no difference in strategy, right? They have not changed. They are making single player games that are amazing. They're going to gamers, which is where all the games, where all the where, where all the money is, right? And so like, I don't, I, I can't blame them for doing that because that's all they know. And that's that's what they're good at, right? Microsoft is basically trying to be more, um, a, a more broad appeal approach that may or may not work ultimately. Um, but uh you know, from my perspective as a, as a gamer, I really like what Sony's doing, but then I cannot argue. I, 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 the thing is I, the, the value prop that they're offering for this subscription is yeah. so insane. You know, like as a consumer, I, it makes complete sense to, to own yeah, this. Thing. Yeah. It's just that I'm trying to figure out, is, is this actually going to be like beneficial to Microsoft? Is this the right long-term strategy for them? Or are they just putting, you know, just throwing everything into Game Pass, making that the best deal possible, even though it might end up burning them in the long run because just- Well, look, I mean, these, uh, all right, now, all right, so now I'll get really saucy. Is that like, these 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 Bain and McKenzie guys are probably putting up these models that are assuming this penetration that gets to a level in which the break even and they're, they're making money in year three or four, year five, right? And so- in year three, if they're losing money hand over fist because the subscriptions are not offsetting the fucking dev costs for all these games and the teams that they're building, then Microsoft's going to look at that and the, and the, and the, the bean counter is going to be like, look, your strategy is not doing what you said it was going to do. And so then there could be a mea culpa, right? In which they have to basically shut this thing down or start charging or something, right? You know, yeah. who knows, right? But Just like uh, Apple Arcade, right? That's the same thing that Apple Yeah, like, it's the same Apple thing. Arcade. It's reached their more, peak, right? Like figured out who's going to stick around and said, okay, well, we can't afford this much content. So let's yeah, go down I mean, and- the, Yeah, the morons that Apple who are putting together Apple Arcade are like, oh yeah, well, we're going to get at least a penetration of one, 2%, 3% or 5%, right? We're going to yeah. make all this money, the 500 million that we're spending on these 
podunk developers is we're going to make this back in droves, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what's happening. And then six months later, like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> There's not not what there, we had like zero point five percent retention on this crap, right? <laughs> of course, right. And so now they back off, and then they start like pulling the rug from all these developers that they funded, and, and now they put them into oblivion, right? So, but Microsoft that I think Microsoft has the ability to actually weather this storm a lot longer than these idiots at Arcade, you know. So um, anyway. I think I think for Microsoft it's a, it's 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 a decent strategy that we'll see if it see if it manifests itself. We'll see if they can create content that's compelling to a broader market, which I think is going to is sorry. I guess from my perspective as an industry analyst, I really want a broader market to get involved with the consoles, right? I thought Fortnite did a good job of bringing people in. We saw this shit with Guitar Hero and Rock Band. We need more experiences to broaden the market, but also maintain the core, right? We are definitely maintaining the core. Like that, they're going freaking nowhere, right? The content is so fucking compelling. There's no reason to go anywhere else, right? But if they build out more content to bring in more a broader audience, that's always good for everybody, right? Because because the whole ecosystem benefits from that, and and so I hope they can do that, right? And I, you know, I. I Three, two years ago, we were talking about this, and I said Microsoft's the only one that can pull off the strategy, right? And Microsoft or Sony, right? And Microsoft's doing just that. So I put together this bullshit consultant PowerPoint, which basically said that Microsoft is the only company that can execute against this, this broader market strategy with the subscription service, and, and they're going for it, right? And they didn't listen to me, but um, they listen to other stupid consultants. But nonetheless... Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it all kind of manifests itself over the next three to five years. But I, I think that makes this cycle very interesting. All right, now we probably bored everyone to death. Yep. So <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's let's call this the lessons this. learned. Every top-down model in Excel works. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you can build any business in Excel, dude. Yeah, no exactly. problem. <laughs> all right, and I think that's it, guys. We ran long, and here comes the cow. Mm.